Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and fishing luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today's special guest is Bill Pierce from New Vineyard, Maine. Bill is a master Maine guide and living legend in the Maine fly fishing community. Bill has an infectious personality and is loved by everyone that has ever met him. Bill has worked in many capacities that have substantially impacted the history and land preservation for the state of Maine for our sport. Bill began his career in Maine working in the ski and golf industry as the sales manager for Sugarloaf USA. Following his success at Sugarloaf, Bill was hired by the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife to boost in-state and out-of-state marketing and promotional efforts. In 2002, Bill was recognized as the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife Employee of the Year. In 2008, Bill received the Distinguished L.L. Bean Outdoor Hero Award for innovation and exemplary service in promoting Maine's outdoors. Following that, Bill became the Director of Development at the Rangeley Lakes Heritage Trust, successfully working in fundraising, land acquisition, and acquiring grants for future land conservation projects. Bill was recognized by a new and growing organization that appointed him as the new executive director for the Rangeley Lakes Historical Society Outdoor Heritage Museum and Rangeley History Museum. His excellence in community organizing and grant writing transformed the Historical Society and Museum into the most impressive collection of Maine fishing history, sporting artifacts, and historical memorabilia. Bill's hobbies include snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, fly fishing, and upland hunting. Bill's favorite pastime is spending fun times with others in his community, as he is a committed friend to everyone he inspires. Bill and his glamorous wife Rhonda recently celebrated 33 years in their successful marriage. They live in New Vineyard, Maine, with their two German short-haired pointers, Zeke and Boomer. Bill, welcome to Flyline Podcast. Wow, it's a pleasure to be here. What an honor. I'm a little uh, taken aback at your description, but thank you. Thank you, Bill. It's great to have you here. I've known you for a very long time, and I think the body of work that you've done for the Maine fishing community, there's a lot to be said about it. And that's part of what we want to try to accomplish this hour is kind of go back, and I like to kind of keep it chronological. I mean, I remember the very first time I ever met you. We were, I was living in Farmington, you were still, you were, naturally you were in New Vineyard, and you were working at Sugarloaf, and you wheeled into uh, Aardvark Outfitters in a classic 1960-something or early 70-something uh, classic car that you were going to give away as a promotional item. Tell me about some of your early marketing at Sugarloaf and what that idea was. Well, um, I primarily focused on some innovations that uh, would draw people to the slower periods of time, mostly in January when it can be super cold and it's after Christmas and people's wallets aren't quite as fat. And so we did uh, Border Fest, and that's what that car was about. I went to the Owl's Head auction and waited till the end of the auction when things were less expensive and got a, I think it was a... A comet, a Mercury comet. Oh yeah! And I was driving it home, and I'm going, "Geez, I don't want to give this thing away. I want to keep it." I mean, it was just a little cherry, you know? and we would load it up. We'd get different uh, vendors to give us uh, all kinds of product and swag, and we loaded it up. And that that weekend, it ended up being, uh, I mean, sold out. And the condos, uh, we sold tickets, and I mean, there was a lot of live music and a lot of fun. Dana Bullen uh, was a great inspiration at, the, at, at Sugarloaf. He went on to Sunday River, and he's a good friend I hunt and fish with to this day. And uh, he, he and I had a lot of fun doing different promotional things. So that was a great job. I've had so many good jobs where people say, hey, how'd you get that job? And then I well, I, I'm interested to know. I think I think there's a story behind your interview for uh, Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife with uh, marketing. Isn't there a story there? <laughs> Mark Laddie, uh, a dear friend who actually works in the commissioner's office today, um, called me up and said, "There's a perfect job for you uh, at IFNW. They're doing uh, uh, they're creating a new position where you uh, do public relations." Uh, take people hunting and fishing uh, to create media stories and basically it's a super creative position that they've never had before 
to uh, improve the image of the department and, and share the wonderful resources in our state. I had nothing to lose. I had a great job. I mean, you get, if you got a job where your skis are in the corner of your office and you're looking at a high-speed quad, that's a pretty good job. And uh, so <laughs> I had nothing to lose when I went on the interview. And I, I, I went in. I think I was last up out of five people they were interviewing. And I looked on the wall, and Lee Perry was uh, the commissioner. And all the pictures of past uh commissioners are on the wall in this waiting area i'm waiting in outside the conference room and i got an hour or so before my interview and i look up and uh lee perry's been there for a year and his name tag isn't on the on his picture right across the street was a trophy maker so i run across the street and i'd use the guy before to make trophies of sugar loaf and i said hey give me a name tag and have it look like this same font and everything and the end of my interview, it was going really well, and I uh, basically, they said, do you have anything else to add? I says, yeah, I says, uh, I think you need this on, on the commissioner's picture outside, so I just want to make it a gift to the department. I got a call on the way home and <laughs> said, would you like the yeah. position? <laughs> of course you did. Yeah, <laughs> and you hit, the ball. You, hit, you hit the ball out of the park. For the audience... If you've ever walked into L.L. Bean or the Kittery Trading Post and you see those baseball hats and coffee cups and T-shirts that have the main department logo on them, that, that was Bill's brainchild. That was his baby. And that was only one of the things that you did to help. You know, basically what, what the department was trying to do was there just wasn't enough revenues by selling licenses and snowmobile registrations to, to cover the needs of the department. And so they, they were looking for new and innovative ways to make money. Bill, but am I getting this correct? Yeah, but I think it was more brand awareness. I'll, I'll explain. You know, the, the first prototype, it, it was not popular within the rank and file. Hey, I had to work hard to wear that logo. Any any schmuck can wear it. And I, I understood that. I said, but, you know, if somebody buys this hat and is willing to wear it, they're supporting you. They're behind you. They're They're on board with your mission. So why wouldn't you do that? And the other thing is the officiality of it. I can remember when I was a kid seeing uh, basically, you know, things like property of the University of Michigan Athletic Department and students would take it. You know, people wanted that officiality. They wanted to support something they love. They have the term Maine across that beautiful logo shield. I said, you know... People will want this, and we'll make some revenue, but they'll also carry the flag for us. And that was important. I'll give you an example. It got so popular. I was at L.L. Bean for a meeting with Mike Gautry, who was a, a instrumental in making it happen. And uh, there was a manager of the Tokyo L.L. Bean there. And he said, uh, we started selling it in Tokyo, the main IF&W logo merchandise. And they had, they had sold five thousand pieces okay so for us it was a buck a piece but that'll tell you i mean that was being worn in discos not duck blinds i mean right. so it was it, it was really pretty interesting and but the first prototype i had given to my brother and i said how do you like the hat he says i call it my pool cleaning hat says, johnny yeah. okay. johnny why is that he goes, well, he says, I'll wade into a pool, and there'll be other anglers around, and all of a sudden, there'll be this huge, you know, people will be reeling up and getting out of there because maybe they weren't barbless, or maybe they had a worm on the end of their fly. He says, he says you get this sudden air of compliance, Bill. It's amazing. So I'm calling it my pool cleaning hat. So, <laughs> and therein lies, that's really what you want. Uh, in terms of the warden service, I mean, it's not about the number of tickets you write. It's the resource you protect more effectively. And that was a, probably the biggest benefit of doing that program. Well, Bill, I mean, that was only one part of it was selling merchandise. But you, I know you went, on the, you went on the road, and I know you love going to shows. I love going to shows as well. <laughs> um, and I'm sure you have a few fun stories to tell about some of the work that you did on show. What were the shows that were the big ones for, for Maine IF&W and you? Well, I, I really felt it was important. You know, there was a lot of hook and bullet shows. And uh, when I came on board, they, 
um, you know, when I say that hook and bullet, it's, you know, you, you could have elk hunting or, or bear hunting or, I mean, uh, rubber worms, anything. And Harrisburg comes to mind as being this huge, I mean, acres of sporting interests. And it was, you know, it's, it's direct sales. You establish credibility with a customer and try to convince them to come your way. So that's what we were doing and, and showing the flag. And, and, you know, we actually sold merchandise there to, to support the effort. So it didn't cost anything to go and attend these shows because we had a little budget. Well, anyways, uh, the most interesting shows and the best shows for us ended up being the fly fishing shows. Marlboro, Somerset, Wilmington. Because uh, the customer was really into it. Um, they, they are willing to travel. In most cases, very well healed. And, yeah. and the other thing is, the beauty of it is the fulfillment on the, product, on the product was very, very easy. Um, and we, we would give lists of guides and regions they could go to. Um, and you know, if you've got a game warden standing in the booth and he's just holding a Delorme Atlas and he opens it up in front of a customer, instantly he'll have 10 people around him. So that was, uh, that was pretty powerful in terms of, uh, promoting folks for direct sales, but by far the fly fishing shows. Yeah, but I also think that the, the you started to rub elbows with a lot of kind of luminaries in the general fishing community, and that helped to <laughs> you know help promote the state. Let's talk about some of the people that you brought. I mean, Lefty Cray. Let's just talk about Lefty. Um, you yeah. brought Lefty to Maine. I'm sure Lefty had been to Maine, but you gave him a season pass to Maine. Yeah. Well, that was pretty easy to do. Uh, one of the finest human beings I've ever met. Um, the opportunity just to sit down to dinner with him, let alone fish, um, w was just such an honor. One of the most engaging, kind, just a absolute, absolutely beautiful human being who sincerely cared about everyone he was around. You know, he could be in the booth and some captain of industry, some rich guy would be standing there and just fawning over Lefty Cray and a little kid had would walk up and uh, <laughs> and Lefty's attention would go right to that little kid and he'd make him feel like he was the center of the universe and it was just beautiful. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, I'll never forget the day we were all out fishing together and, um, you know, he had Natalie, your daughter, fishing with him because that's who he wanted to spend the day with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll never forget going. It was kind of a late start in the day, and I had my drift boat, and I went to, and Natalie went to like first period at school. And she was, I think, in fifth grade. And uh, Lefty kept on saying, You got to go. I want to fish with Natalie. I want to fish with Natalie. And I mean, that meant the world to me. But I went to pick her up, and her teacher, <laughs> her teacher was there, and uh, Rick, and uh, Rick Hardy. And uh, I go in, and I says, he goes, where are you going? I says, well, we're actually going to play hooky. We're going fly fishing with Lefty Cray. And out loud, he goes, get the F out <laughs> in front of the class. And I said, right. yeah. He says, can I come? Can I come? <laughs> he was ready to leave his job right on the spot to go fish with Lefty. That's a that's a great story, and anybody would as well. I mean, I remember picking him up one day. Uh, where the, I think it was we were getting ready to go fish up around Bethel uh, with Rocky and Rocky Frida, and then the next day we were going to drop down into um, Dixfield and Rumford area. And uh, but anyhow, what I'm uh, to go back to when I picked him at the, up at the jet port, I was sitting in the satellite parking lot across from baggage claim, and uh, I've got a you know fly rods on the top of my jeep and. Uh, this guy walks up and he's, you know, I caught so many stripers this summer and let me tell you what I do to catch fish. And I'm just sitting back listening to him talk and <laughs> Lefty comes walking out of the terminal. <laughs> Good morning, yeah. Mike. Thanks for coming to pick me up, you know. And I'm yeah. like, hey, Lefty, Lefty, all right, let's put your bags in the back here. And this guy's jaw was on the on the, on the the parking lot ground. It was hilarious. So, uh, But, you know, the great part about him was, you know, five minutes up the up the road in the car, you forget that you have this rock star because he's just such a he was Absolutely. just such a genuine you felt like you had your your uncle or your neighbor in the car with you oh, he yeah. was just he was such a down-to-earth person 
devoid of pretension. Um, but yes. you know, you're you're hanging out with the Babe Ruth of fly fishing, truly. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. most accomplished fly, fly fisherman, um, probably that's ever lived. I mean, you go into the basement of his house in Maryland, and I mean, it, it, very unassuming home too. You know, I, I, oh yeah. And uh, this is a guy who, you know, Tom Brokaw and Liam Nielsen will pick up in a private jet just to go and fish with him. And, you know, you go into his house and, you know, it's got some real treasures on the wall upstairs. But when you go in the basement, oh, my Lord, that he was so technical. I mean, he had a machine that would test knot strength and leaders and... Uh, I mean, all these different prototype rods, many of which he developed. I actually told him one time I was going fly fishing with Rhonda. He absolutely loved Rhonda. All my kids, too. And um, I said, we were going fly fishing in uh, Abaco. He says, oh, he says, I'm going to send you a rod. He sent me a, a Temple Fork he was working with, of course, at the time. And he, he says, it's a one-of-a-kind and he had personally engraved his signature in the in the real seat, and it has information about the prototype that it is. He says, and it's the only one of its kind in the world because I really like the blank, but I hate the 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 fighting butt on it. So we're going to change that before we sell it. And that's down in the basement, and the kids are already arguing who gets it when I when I croak. So <laughs> we fish with it still. Yeah, he. I remember I was in the boat with him, and we were, he, you know, he loved to talk about knots. And he sometimes just put the rod down. We put the anchor down. And he would just show show me knots for you know forty five minutes, and he'd say, you know, some people say, Michael, you can't, you know, this is the knot, this is the strongest knot. And he says, Michael, I have an eight hundred dollar knot testing machine, and it does not have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, great. He was so charming, and he, I mean, brilliant man. And uh, I'll never forget the time we had stopped for lunch and lunch was over and we had all the drift boats there and uh, you were doing what you do. Uh, you know, you'll, you, it, you know, you've been guiding and you started stretching out a line and Lefty put down his coffee and you kind of, you two kind of went off to the side. And he was watching you, Cass, and you guys started a technical conversation that I will never forget. I mean... I mean, you, Mr. Man, were stretching it out to the point where, you know, here's Lefty Craig going, wow. Now, Lefty could be flowery, nice cast bill or something like that when you're actually fishing. But you were just, I mean, you were sending it into another area code. And he told you to do something a little bit different. And you changed it up. And it went even further. And, you know, I know this sounds complimentary to you, and I hate that because I don't want it to go to your head. But it was fun to watch you and you guys uh, hanging out together and basically doing a click and clack tech talk right there. It was pretty fun. Well, I think you're saying something that's really important for everyone to realize, and that is um, when you're standing inside your own body, you can't see your own golf swing. And what Lefty could do is he could stand outside of anybody and, and diagnose what he was seeing in a meaningful way. And it wasn't just criticism. It was more like, hey, I want to make you better. And, and he did that for everybody, myself included. Oh, he right? took me on to a piece of line, uh, excuse me, a piece of lawn once. And uh, he says, Bill, I really like, he says, I like the way you are. And he says, you could sell TV sets at the school for the blind. He says, but that makes you a good teacher. And he says, I want to teach you how to teach. And I, that was just so profound to me. And to this day, he taught me four things that I do when I'm fishing all by myself. That where I make a mistake in my cast and I instantly know what I just did and how to correct it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it was just so valuable. Yeah, yeah. No, it's we could we could talk a lot about him. He gave us so many wonderful memories uh, just in his visits to Maine, and um, 
I, I have to say thank you, Bill, because uh, you introduced uh, Lefty and also King Montgomery, who will oh. probably ultimately get on the podcast because he's another one of my favorite humans. Oh, yeah. He's a great to. guy. Yeah. I mean, he's he's just been a, he's turned into a friend and, you know, he's come to South America with me and we fished even last year. And um, but and, and for the listening audience, King Montgomery is a prolific um uh, a contributing writer for a lot of the magazines uh, in uh, sporting, uh, fishing, and hunting in the area. Uh, yeah. Bill, let's uh, let's segue into Rangeley Lakes Heritage Trust because I think that was your next professional chapter after IFNW. What what kind of got you to go there? Uh, Nancy Pearlson was the executive director, and uh, Shelby Russo, I think, who's now on the advisory council, and she's still employed there. Um, they 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 wanted to hire a director of development, and I didn't even know what that was. You know, why would a land trust need a director of development? I mean, it, and then of course, it's about fundraising. And uh, I, my first answer is, was, well, you know, why would I want to do that? I don't I don't want to ask people for money, and. Um, I was a direct sales kind of guy and grassroots, you know, guerrilla marketing guy. And they said, well, well, you're the only person we're we're looking to hire. And um, we really and I ended up doing three different sit downs with Nancy. And the first two, I had said, no, I don't want to do it. Wow. It's funny, Michael, because the thing I ended up enjoying the most was asking people for money. Because what we were doing. What we were yeah. doing, it was, you know, the, the beauty of the job was whatever I was successful at or what we were at collectively successful at um, was going to last well beyond our lifetimes in terms of future generations who are going to enjoy what we could conserve. And that's pretty cool. And I basically would, would instead of, you know, pound on people, I'd, I'd think of an individual and what makes them tick a little bit and, and say, you know, why wouldn't this work for you, you know, and present it that way. And it was successful, and we raised some money and had some fun and saved some pretty special spots for the future. And uh, I have to say, Nancy Pearlson was just an amazing woman in terms of her support of whatever I was doing as a boss, but her passion for conserving land in the Ranger Lakes region. And she did so in such an unassuming way that um, it, it's something that f- she was behind most of everything that's really been saved up there that's really, truly special. So it was a pleasure to work there for five years. Yeah, Nancy Pearlson has uh, definitely um, done, just de- her name is decorated in the Franklin County region for the work that she's done. And Rangeley is a better town today because of her uh, in Aquasa. Oh, the well. whole region is. The whole region is. Yeah. yeah. Bill, we're going to. Um, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and I want to talk a little bit more about some of your work that you did with the museum. Sounds great. For this Flyline Flashback, I want to share a passage from the book Maine Game Wardens, written by Eric White. Following Maine's admittance into the Union in 1820, a few laws were passed dealing primarily with the method of taking fish along the tidal river mouths and bays. As the state's population grew, the laws involving fish were expanded to include freshwater species and, along with some unpaid men called fish wardens, were Maine's first attempt at conservation. Fish were still abundant everywhere, and most people saw no cause for alarm. Therefore, compliance was very limited. The Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife was established in 1850. As for hunting, there had been game laws regulating the seasons since 1830, but since there were no bag limits, no enforcement was attempted. The first attempt at enforcing any game laws came in mid-1860s, when the legislature authorized seven counties to appoint moose wardens. These men were met with very limited success and received anywhere from $25 to $85 per year, depending on the apprehensions they made. So, Bill, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about your work with the uh, Rangeley Lakes Heritage Trust uh, in terms of like land acquisition. I know there was a really unique story there with um, a parcel of land that that you wanted to to turn into an asset for 
the area. Can you can you tell me more about that? Well, well, um, they had prior to my arrival there, they had developed this great program called EcoVenture, and EcoVenture is a summer camp, day camp for kids in in the region up there, and uh, you know, and it really provided an awesome experience for. Uh, a lot of the children arrangely that may have come from an economic um, circumstance that wouldn't have be able to afford them the opportunity. And EcoVenture was just fabulous. And, um, you know, a lot of folks up there, because the summer's so busy, mom and dad are working, what are the kids doing all day? So they had a campus that was donated to them, and um, but it wasn't on water. And you know what it's like in Rangeley. It's the most expensive waterfront property in Maine. And so to, to acquire a campus that was on water was difficult. Well, Jean Noyce um, was in the, she uh, owned a set of camps right next to Rangeley Lake State Park. And Jean was, had been a strong uh, opponent to everything the Heritage Trust was doing. Uh, she was in the real estate business. Uh, Sheldon Noyes, her her partner yep. and husband, was you know a big developer of land in the Rangeley region. Very successful, also a powerful uh, member of the Maine Senate. Uh, a real horse and a cool guy. Well, I had developed a relationship outside of my land conservation and her development interests with her, where. She was just a nice lady to go and talk to. So we'd hang out. We wouldn't talk about business, and we had formed a friendship. And I was sitting on her porch overlooking Rangeley Lake one day, and I said, uh, I've got to talk to you. And she goes, oh, here it comes. You're going to ask me to support that damn land trust and do give some land or money, and I'm just going to tell you, Bill, I like you, but I don't give a hoot about what they're doing taking money out of the tax rolls and stuff. I said, just hear me out. I says, you want to sell this property, this historic set of camps. Nabobin was the name of the camps, and her house was on it. And I says, you want to sell this, but you have two covenants where you can't sell it. She goes, how'd you know that? I says, I did my homework a little bit. And she, I said, well, whoever buys this place has to run it as a camp for five years. And the other thing is, you have to give first refusal to the state on any offer, which will hold it up for another six months. She goes, yeah, and she starts rocking even faster. She's really agitated. And I said, what if I can get those things lifted so you can, so you can sell this property? She goes, I'm listening. I says, I need a, a piece of land between you and the state park. And uh, it's, we just need a lot, and we need 350 feet of river frontage for the kids, a river, uh, lake frontage for the kids, and all the way out to the road for a campus. And she says, why would I do that? I says, because you've got to sell this place, and if I can make that happen with the state for them to release your covenants, how about it? So I went to Beardsley. She said, yeah. I went to Beardsley, uh, Commissioner Beardsley with the uh, Department of Conservation at the time and uh, presented to him. He says, what are you doing negotiating our covenants? This is not your covenants. You work for the state of Maine. I'm representing the children of Rangeley. And That's the people right. of the, the people <laughs> of the state of Maine, Commissioner, I says, you work, you, with all due respect, you work for us. And so tell me why you wouldn't do this. He says, well, we need something more. Well, there was a big map of Nabobin in the state park right in front. And then right there on the spot, I, I put a pencil mark right on the shoreline. And I said, we own the land at South Bog Stream, all conserved, right next to the state park over on the other end. What if we give you a piece of property that looks like this? And I drew a big triangle right out of South Bog Stream land that we owned as the land trust. And we give that to the state of Maine. And you'll be able to hunt and fish on it. Can you imagine a piece of state park that allows hunting on it? And his eyes lit right up. Korski worked for Governor LePage. And Governor LePage knows where Buck is. And uh, he said, yeah, we'll do that. Well, I hadn't cleared it with anybody. 
But I said, well, I'll bring it back to our board of directors and see what happens. So basically, we, we gave up the sleeves of our jacket. It was conserved land anyways. Who cares who owns it if it's conserved? And uh, the kids got a, a future campus on, uh, on the other end of the state park, and Jean got what she wanted, and it all worked out. So it was fun to be able to do stuff like that. Well, the, 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 the land trust has done such a great job. I mean, Rangeley just doesn't look the same anymore. It looks, it's protected. Oh. So many, I mean, we, oh. we spent a week in, in Rangeley this summer uh, at, on vacation, Sherry and I with my family, and it's just wonderful. We were actually right down by the state park, and I know all these locations that you're talking about, and thank you, Bill, for, for protecting that forever because we went canoeing one night, and there's miles of shoreline there that are undeveloped, and, and it should stay that way. Well, you know, I, I played a small part in all that. So many other people um, before me and after and, and since my short tenure there. Um, I mean, what David Miller, the, the director, has done there um, and Paul Reynolds, the president of the board um, and the whole board. It's just it's a fabulous land trust. They do fabulous work. And what they've done since then it's just been monumental. I mean, the work up in the Kennebago area um, with the help of a dear friend of, uh, that we share. And uh, yes. along the Rapid River as well. I mean, uh, I know he wants to remain anonymous, but the trust puts people like that together with projects that make a difference for future generations. So it's pretty special. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, I actually went in uh, to Kennebago with him this springtime and was able to just, you know, go through the parcels that that, uh, were acquired. And that's a big piece of land, buddy. That's a big piece of land in there. And it's an important piece of land because it's at the headwaters of the Androscoggin River. So, yeah. Yeah, and with global warming, I think that's a place that may... um, serve as a real strong buffer to slow that process down for for Maine. Um, But, uh, Bill, let's uh, thank you again for all the work you did with the Land Trust. I think that that's part of, you know, one of the largest footprints that you've made in your career. But the larger footprint for me, really, I think, is the museum. Uh, You really came into your best work when you started working with the museum. I don't remember the story behind how you went to the museum. Can you tell? I know Don, Don was involved in getting you involved, but. Oh, Don, Don Palmer was the reason I was back in Rangeley. Um, and, you know, he said, you know, we can't pay you a lot of money. We got enough to pay you for two years. Um, this is the job. Uh, he had had a health uh, event, so he was concerned who was going to pick up the torch on the project and run with it and expand it. And um, he said, "I really want you know." And he was a dear friend. I mean, he he and Stephanie, uh, I I owe a great deal to, um, and the region owns so much to. Uh, he uh, just you know he's gone now, but uh, he he brought me on board and. It, and I said, you know, I, I, I love history, but I don't know much about museums. He says, Bill, we, we need you to raise money and gain support for the, for the project. That's what we need you to do. And you'll learn all the rest of that. Michael, I don't think I read anything but Rangeley history for nine years. I think I, I, won, I read one other book. Um, and, you know, now I still even write columns about the history. It was such an easy job uh, as a museum director and a historical society director because the history just is monumental and so rich. The other thing is, you know, a lot of Gilded Age history and a lot of wealthy people came there and they bought the best stuff and numerous examples thereof. So that's so it survived. You know, a lot of that great fishing tackle and memorabilia and what have you and just basically what I did was you know build exhibits that told great stories and about an amazing time and with so many luminaries in the fly fishing world yeah and you know Bill I think I think if you guys had not done it 
Don Palmer and yourself had not done it when you did, even if it started now, it wouldn't have the same impact that it has today because how many generations does it take to lose that old Herbie Welch fly or fly vest? And it just things get thrown away, things get discarded, and you guys just... I mean, just in your in your own time there, the collection just exploded. I mean, the collection at the yeah. museum is just commanding. You don't have enough hours in the day to take it all in. Well, he Don, you know, he said, you know, it was a build it and they will come. And when I took it over, you know, he didn't have enough within his own collections and what he was getting for loans to really fill the space. So there was a lot of foam core and, and copies of pictures and stuff. Now there's not enough space to put everything in, you know. Uh, and we had a hundred, an average year, we'd acquire a hundred artifacts. Um, yes. And it, it was, I had a guy walk in. Uh, and he had a old map of Maine, 1822, a Moses Greenleaf map, 1822. I ended up finding out there was only three in existence. There still is only three wow. known. And uh, it's 1822 map of Maine. And, you know, it's in rough condition. And I said, where did you get this? He goes, well, he says, uh, I was working as a laborer on a construction job in, in Manchester by the sea in Massachusetts. And the owner got impatient because we weren't clearing the stuff out because he wanted to modernize this old mansion. And it was in the dumpster. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> and he says, I, I pulled fly rods and this map out of that dumpster, a couple little coffee tables because the man... The guy that owned the place was upset with the contractor that he hadn't removed the contents yet, and he was just walking out of the house and throwing stuff in this construction dumpster. And one of them was this map. And yeah, that's. Uh, I mean that that goes to exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, it doesn't take long for things that are of great importance to our their sporting history to just get discarded because people don't understand the value of them. And I mean, I I, I love the hardest thing for me when I was uh, visiting the museum with you, Bill, was trying to leave. I couldn't because you had, oh, no, just Mike, one one more thing. Let me just show you that. And there, Herbie Welch, he went and he got in this fly casting competition, and this is the jacket he wore. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, take me take take me through the rooms a little bit. You know, starting when you walk in the door and you turn right, there's like a, there's a reconstructed cabin, right? Right. Well, Don and Stephanie, I mean, they're, they're just a great team to get this thing going. And they had found out about this uh, old cabin on a uh, on a property um, off the Loon Lake Road, and it was uh, just a local guide's cabin. He he guided hunters out of it to pick up some extra money. And uh, Lehman Wilcox was his name, and he built this beautiful cabin. And they they had it disassembled and reassembled when they were building the museum as the initial place you walk into, and it. It's just so cool. And, you know, and, and since that time while I was there, I, I had been working with a family, a, you know, a blue-collar family up in Parmachini. Uh, had, their father had been at the auction for Parmachini Club and had acquired a main caribou mount that John Danforth had had on yep. his lodge wall. And, you know, main caribou. And I yeah, just had to have it for the museum. It's, and working with the Emerson family over a year and a half of convincing them that this is where it needed to be and that their father would love the fact that it was there and we would recognize that. And they couldn't afford to just donate it, so we worked out a little cash in a Quebec caribou head for it. And basically, it epitomizes any success I had was just building a relationship with folks to a point and treating them the way I'd want to be treated if I had that treasure and caring about them and the treasure so it would get conserved. And the place is packed with gems yeah. just by operating that way. And, you know, I think that that's one of the things that gets lost in translation is what is a museum? A museum is really just a large collection of people donating things from their private collection so that the, the, the general public can enjoy it. 
Um, it's not just yeah. the work that Bill Pierce did, but it's the work of the people that actually donated it ultimately to the collection uh, right. or sold it. You know, that's a decision, you know, you to decide Absolutely. you're going to part with something because of its, you know, its uh, importance, you know, to the, to the history of the area. And if anybody who's listening to this has not been to the museum, you definitely oh. need to, to take time out of your day. It's just it's a it's a diamond in the rough and it's wonderful. And um, yeah. You know, you, you did a you did a ton to make that place what it is today, Bill, and and, and we all thank Thanks. you for your work there. It's just really great. Um, I'll tell yeah. you an aside Bill, to that really quickly. Yeah. Uh, this gentleman showed up and uh, he says, "I'm writing a book about fly fishing um, equipment and vintage equipment." And they said, "I really had to come here and talk with you and see it." And it's a big coffee table book called Fly Fishing Treasures by Stephen White. And um, give you an example of the, the, the quality of the museum. He, he, there's two other institutions uh, in the, featured in the book outside of private collectors. And one is the London Fly Fishing Museum. And the other one is the Fly Fishing Museum in... in uh, in Vermont, so so I mean we were, we're a pretty fast company, you know the London Fly Fishing Museum and the American Museum of Fly Fishing, uh, you know so that was pretty cool. Yeah, now you now Maine has its own um, you know peg to, to hang a hat on. I mean it's wonderful yeah. that it exists and um, yeah. Do do you guys have any classic uh, cane rods there? I know you probably have some <laughs> Herbie Welch rods and. Um, <laughs> We have all kinds. I mean, the the other thing is, you know, we took loans, and that that was really important loan of artifacts because, you know, Michael, you walk in and you look at something, and you look at the tag underneath it, donated by Michael Jones or loaned by Michael Jones. You don't care. You just want to see the see the baby, you know. And, right. uh, yep. and so we 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 got loans from the Maine State Museum, and um, so a wonderful wonderful uh rod collection um just on loan for a couple three years of various cane rods and of course the the largest collection of carrie stevens original flies in the world thanks to don and stephanie's passion for collecting that he actually one day yep. got 20 carrie stevens flies at a yard sale in rangeley in a cigar box and two of them were still in the package. Oh and I, lord! And he oh, said, lord. "I felt like Beelzebub for 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 only spending forty dollars on it." Oh. I mean, there's flies, there's flies that are worth a thousand dollars tied by Carrie Stevens, uh, an Atlantic yes. salmon original gray ghost uh, in, in unused condition. It's, that's a grand. And. Another yeah. time I was at the front desk and I hear somebody go, shit, out loud in the museum. I figured they bumped into something and broke it or whatever. And I was, I go running back there and the guy's standing in front of the Carrie Stevens exhibit. He goes, these are valuable? I said, hell yeah. I said, come on out front. I says, we sell duplicates of our, uh, in our collection that, you know, to support the museum, we have some Carrie Stevens originals out front. And he looked at the prices and he spun around in place, cussing. He looked like the Tasmanian Tasmanian devil. I thought he was going to break something in the gift shop. And uh, I go, what? He goes, I've been casting these things for 15 years from my grandfather's fly wallet. I said, you're kidding me. Oh, I've hung them in trees. I've lost them on fish. Hooked them in the bottom of pools. I said, you got to be kidding me. He says, no. I says, you got any left? He says, oh, maybe a half a dozen. I said, do me a favor. Send me pictures of them because if they're patterns we don't have, I'm going to make you an offer. So, that, uh, wow. it was like Antiques Roadshow running that I know. Place. It was just I know. so much fun. Uh, do, anything from uh, Flyrod Crosby? Are there any artifacts from Flyrod Crosby? Oh, we had some. Well, well, there's cool stuff there today, but we actually got a, a on loan from the state of Maine, and it's in their collection. It's probably in their in their warehouse again. But we had it on exhibit for 
a while because she did sports shows herself. The greatest promoter in the history of the state of Maine for hunting and fishing was, without question, Fly Rod Crosby. A direct sales monster. Okay, there'd be 350,000 people that would go through uh, the New York Sporting Exhibition in 1898 in Madison Square Garden. And Flyrod was a star. So she had become friends with another promotional star, and that was Annie Oakley, you know, the right. little sure shot. And she became friends with Annie, and Annie gave her a Native American Plains Indian purse that had been given to her by one of the performers in the Wild Buffalo Bill Wild West show. And she gave it to Flyrod, which was really cool. It's in the State of Maine collection. Uh, and we had it on exhibit for two years. We also, um, the box that sat, sat, a little wooden box that sat uh, on the desk at Upper Dam House that all Carrie Stevens flies were sold out of is in the collection. Um, we, we have several gems. We have a paddle that was given to Fly Rod and just all kinds of stuff. But she was a really cool lady. Uh, I had the pleasure I, of writing her application for the Maine Women's Hall of Fame. And because I was walking through there one day at the University of Augusta, Maine Augusta, I didn't even know it was there. I go, what the heck? No fly rod Crosby in the hall? So I wrote the application, and she was admitted the following year. Yeah, and I mean, I, I can't remember if it was fly rod Crosby, but I was recently looking at something uh, history-related to Maine fly fishing, and your name came up as quoting that this person was the Tom Brady of... Do you remember who you added that you, you you attached Tom Brady to someone in Maine fly fishing history? I'm trying to remember who that was. I'm I'm trying to remember too, but I'm always making comparisons. It's hard to, but you know, fly rod. Oh, being an overachiever. I mean, you know, Tom was like drafted in the sixth round, and you know, right. fly rod. It's like so many Mainers, you know, they came from humble roots and started flying in high circles, and. uh she had uh, she had consumption, tuberculosis, when she was a child. Her father died of it. Her brother died yeah. of it later on. Um, she overcame a lot. I think a big reason she became such a great writer is because she blew her knee out getting off the, the train in Phillips, and it dragged her down the track. It didn't come to a complete stop, the narrow-gauge train. and uh, Her long skirt got caught and she couldn't go tramping through the woods as much anymore, so she just started writing about it, and prolifically. They changed the name of a newspaper because of her. I mean, the Phillips Phonograph, and Phillips was quite a, a regional uh, little empire in the wood business. Um, and, you know, here, and, uh, they had a newspaper called the Phillips Phonograph, and because so many people wanted news from the region that they wanted to come and hang out in, uh, they changed it to the Maine Woods. And she was the lead writer, and all the people, the, the famous and wealthy sports that came to the region wanted, wanted to hear about the place they loved, so they got subscriptions to the Phillips Phonograph, and it became the Maine Woods. Yeah, and I think uh, Fly Rock Crosby will go down as one of the greatest... Uh women legends in, in Maine sporting for sure, but uh, there's another important woman that's in your life, uh, Rhonda, and I've known Rhonda as long as I've known you, and I just think you're a great couple. Tell me how you met Rhonda. Uh, she was my best friend's little brother's girlfriend, and I needed a babysitter one time. I was down in Florida, and my best friend, Tommy, says, uh, um, I know, why don't my 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 brother's high school girlfriend Rhonda she could do it and uh I said sure so she was actually the babysitter for first um you know it, it's not how you sound I mean we didn't become a couple till six years later but um Tommy had died in a car accident and his brother that Rhonda was engaged to um was hit by a drunk driver um, and killed while he was with Rhonda. 
So she was like family to me because we had gone through so much together. And I was out on a date one time and I was with a girl that Rhonda had probably given me crap for being with, you know, because she was like a sister. And I said, geez, why not Rhonda? Why am I not going out with Rhonda? And I presented it to her and she told me she wouldn't go out with me because I was a slut. Um, she loved me and but you know like family but no and uh, I asked her uh, we ran into each other again two two weeks after that and she said thanks for screwing me up I says why she says well I thought about it a lot and I I, I think we ought to and it was like we got married on the spot when we went when we uh, right went on our first date we went to the parents house of my best friend and her fiance and they both cried and he asked me if I needed money for the date and then told me he was going to kill me if I had done anything to hurt her. And I've honored that for 36 years. And it's been my pleasure. 36? 36 yeah, years. Friend, okay, your friend. She raised my first two. Ch I had two children at the time. And That's she right. She took on me and a, f a four and a five-year-old and put up with my yeah. fly fishing addiction. So. Think about it. Yep. I mean, yep. I, I, I won the lottery, buddy. I won the lottery. Yeah, you you did, and you have, you know, you have a beautiful family, Bill. I love Yeah, we had two more. Guys at your house. And I had to have a vasectomy reversal for that, and I don't recommend that, Michael. You never want to have a vasectomy no, reversal. Well. It's like they Ow. take your boys out, and Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe play a five-setter <laughs> with them, and then they tuck them back in. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bill, you're so full of it, and that's why I love you so much. I but, love I you mean, too, you just, buddy. The, the, this this podcast is about the people, and and you are just you're the perfect candidate for it. And I really appreciate you getting on with me and spending an hour chatting and sharing some of your life with the audience. And Bill, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Ah, the pleasure's all mine. We could do it again, cover some completely different inter interview material, and you'd think you were. Uh, Talking to somebody with completely different set of stories. Oh, so, I know that. Uh, Maybe we will have you come back again, Bill. Thanks for your generosity and everything you've done for um, the sporting community in Maine. Never threaten me with a good time, baby. Good seeing you. Have a good one. Good luck with the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bill. Have a good day. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline Podcast is a product of Riverside FM. <laughs>